Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal. In today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Alok Tai, VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, a fellow podcaster and the founder of the Biotech 2050 podcast. Alok has a very impressive academic and entrepreneurial background. He has been published in Forbes, Nature and Nature Chemistry. He's also the founder of Pre-Scouter and Tetra Science, raising millions along the way. He, in my mind, is a scientific entrepreneur and an all-round nice guy. Hey, Alec, welcome to the show. Hey, Roman. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Absolute pleasure to to be connected with you again. And uh, so, Alok, just to start off with, it'd be great to let the listeners know a bit about you and you know what you do at Ignite, and just give uh, the listeners some context, maybe also to how you how you ended up in the sector as well. Sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, my role here at Ignite, uh, as you mentioned, I'm the vice president and general manager of the life sciences business unit at Ignite. Uh, I've been there for about a year. Uh, Ignite as a company provides a content governance platform which helps companies manage uh, and govern regulated data uh, in in a myriad of different industries. Uh, My responsibility is to basically uh, run and manage the the life sciences uh, P&L. And so got a few hundred customers in that space and have been seeing a lot of growth in that area as well. My road to Ignite has been um, uh, perhaps slightly different than most. You you alluded in your intro that I'm a scientist by trade and training. Uh, I started my career when I was 15 or 16 years old, uh, initially doing lab automation for nanotechnology. So I started very young building software and hardware in the scientific space, and then spent about 15 years or so uh, doing research and as a scientist before I sort of caught the software bug and started two software companies that sold software specifically to the life sciences domain. And so, you know, my road here has been uh, slightly meandering, slightly different, you know, <laughs> partially as uh, a scientist and a practitioner uh, of, of the work that we do in the industry, but then also as a uh, entrepreneur and uh, a software salesperson, if you will, <laughs> and then now as sort of an executive in a larger pre-IPO software company. And where did that entrepreneurial kind of piece come from? Is that something that was always kind of part of your makeup or something influenced by your parents, perhaps? Yeah, always always interested to know where that comes from. You know, it's a good question. Um, I'll be honest, I don't really know exactly where it comes (laughs) from. Uh, My folks came to the States back in the 70s, and uh, I think any immigrant family has to have some uh, entrepreneurial aspect to it just because of you're building something new, right? The most foundational, I think, part of uh, any society is the family. And so you're creating a new family and a new geography. So there is something inherently entrepreneurial. However, my mom is a lawyer, my dad's a academic. So I don't think the profession necessarily came from there. If I was to draw the roots back, I would say coming up in an academic household, especially when that's scientifically focused, you tend to spend a lot of time having to be creative uh, in terms of the work that you're doing and be at the forefront of new technology, especially in a scientific context. And what I have simply observed, I think, and what I found in myself was an interest in applying those same methodologies, frameworks, philosophies to actually business and go-to-market and the convergence of tech and biotech. Mm-hmm. Love that. And you, you said that you obviously you've started two life science kind of software businesses. Do you just have a, 
you, you strike me as someone who just spots problems <laughs> and then you know puts the jigsaw pieces technology wise to go and fix them is that a fair assessment of, of how you end up building these companies yeah you know i think um uh it's a priori right easy for you to be able to make it seem like it was divine and you know that you're a genius of how these things came together uh the reality i think is um first it was a combination of a unique perspective uh on how to solve a problem second a deep and thorough understanding of that problem and then third i think is a, is a fair amount of luck that just sort of gets thrown in there and so uh for either of those companies, it ended up being a scenario where the initial start of those businesses, whether it be pre-scout or tetroscience, was really focused around solving problems that I myself had as a scientist, um, whether it be finding technologies to help support my science in the case of pre-scouter or helping to automate and digitize the scientific experimentation process and scientific data in the case of tetroscience. It was really just about solving problems I had and then I think what ended up happening was that there ended up just being a very large business opportunity in the back end that merited a startup and merited, um, you know, building a company around it. So I, I'd be dishonest if I said it was divine and it was like, you know, geniuses. It was, I think, a little bit of trying to be trying to solve our own problems, but then finding there's a real bit interesting business opportunity in the back end. And you're and you're not involved in those businesses today, and because they're they're both sizable businesses in their own right. If if I if I if my research tells me correctly, yeah. So you know, um, uh, one company serves about thirty customers. Uh, sorry, thirty employees, sixty customers. The other has about three hundred employees, four hundred customers. My co-founders run both businesses. Um, it's been great to sort of see the zero to ten million dollar uh, revenue run a couple times across those businesses and other than being a super large shareholder and a strong supporter and cheerleader, you know, my focus is here at Ignite, uh, which I joined last year. Uh, it's interesting to sort of see, you know, juxtapose that startup experience with Ignite, which is, you know, a seven, six, 700 employee company, $100 million a year revenue business, and it's sort of just as, as pre-IPO. So it becomes a very interesting juxtaposition to see what early stage and building that is like versus a much more mature scaling organization uh, thereafter. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because I know um, Alok and I met for the listener. We met when I actually moved to Boston and uh, intermediate contact said, you've got to meet Alok. He's, he's a great guy and you'll get on. And yeah, thankfully we did get on uh, well together. And when you know we had coffee together and I, I was kind of in awe of your kind of entrepreneurial um, experience and what you'd achieved. And then uh, I got a text one day to say, you've taken a job. And I was like, you've taken a job. You're going to be working for someone else. And so I, I, you know, I have to ask, you know, what was that decision process like in terms of, you know, you said that that kind of juxtaposition of having your other organizations kind of, I suppose, working in a, in a bigger business, what, what was that process like in terms of coming to that decision? And what have you learned about, I suppose, I suppose, building a team in a, in, a, in a vertical within a bigger business. And I suspect a lot of the lessons that you learned from building your own businesses are, have been invaluable. But yeah, it'd be really kind of super interesting to hear your uh, kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, um, 
not sure if I'll have uh, unique insights compared to other folks, but uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners in the you know outsourcing space have probably also seen, there's a resurgence, I think, of emerging service providers, whether it be you know folks in the cell and gene therapy space, whether it be you know academic institutions that now have labs that sort of do GMP manufacturing, et cetera. There's, I think, a lot of real interesting disruption that's happening in, in the world, and uh, whether it be on the software side or the services side. Uh, for me personally, the decision really uh, was an odd one because I was running a technology company previously and then sort of uh, had built a partnership with Ignite, uh, you know, spearheaded some of the the partnership and the integration activities. And we actually ended up sharing some investors in common. So I got a real deep view into sort of how Ignite operates. Uh, when they were mentioning that, you know, as a company, they were had hit this revenue milestone of $100 million a year in, in recurring revenue, as well as we're thinking about going public but saw a critical facet of that story as being building out a vertical business unit, the first one focused on the life sciences, it became a really interesting opportunity where being able to see that sort of stage of business along with the ability to build in an entrepreneurial context, that business unit the right way, I think became a really interesting opportunity that I had never had that kind of challenge before. Uh, So I'd say it became one of both luck in terms of having gotten to know the team, but then one, it still has a strong entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial aspect to it where the business unit started with just me in the organization. And now we've got a team of about three dozen across all functions from sales and marketing through to product and account management who are focused on this domain. And we're seeing tremendous growth uh, in that space as well. So yeah, I'd say it was a little bit of luck still an entrepreneurial sort of focus, but also I think one that allows me to sort of see what it's like to take a company to that, uh, to the promised land, if you will, whether it be public or exit or something like that. That's awesome. And uh, I can't believe how, how big your team is already. <laughs> you built, I think if I heard correctly, there's you know, 30 plus people in, in your yep. team in that business. Uh, yep. I didn't actually realize Ignite was such a big company. It's an, it's an impressive uh, business and yeah as you said it's very well placed to take advantage of opportunity in, in supporting the, the life science sector and I just wanted to go back a little bit about um, when you when you went through that journey and in, in terms of building your own businesses and um, you know I read that you'd you'd raised millions in terms of VC funding and I just wanted to ask what that process was like it's something that we see a lot in the outsourcing space in terms of um, kind of you know to either take a private equity or M&A activity and just interested to know what your experience was like, particularly if I assume it was in, in Boston as well, where there is a, a lot of VC funding kind of out there. H- how was that process? And I'm sure you learned you know, lots of lessons. And if you did it again, how would you do it differently? It'd be really uh, fascinating to get your thoughts on that experience. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, you know, there's been a lot of activity, especially in the, the outsourcing space. You see not only venture capital firms and biotech firms, but uh, VC firms, but then also a lot of private equity activity as well, right? Uh, sponsoring the space. So it's, it's great to see that kind of um, uh, capital come in because I think it just helps add fuel to the fire of the great work that folks in the CDMO and CRO space are, are pursuing. My experience with venture capital uh, is really you know focused around uh, software companies. And uh, you know I raised about 10 to $11 million in venture capital across three different rounds for one of my companies. And uh, it's interesting in that the two aspects of this process that I or of of raising capital that I think are important are first very much focusing on the people, uh, and then the second is then focusing on the process. In terms of the people, 
uh, you know, many of my the folks who I trust deeply uh, in terms of business and close relationships I have were actually folks that I raised capital from. And uh, I've known some of those folks longer than I've been married, actually. And so, you know, the, the, the VC entrepreneur relationship, I think, is a very important one and requires that you be really judicious about finding folks with the right values, the right mindset, who have the long-term sort of thinking that's going to be needed to build a successful business. So when I was uh, evaluating investors, you know, for one of my rounds, I talked to like 35 different funds. And um, I always, the first thing I always vetted for was first character and values, made sure that they were very good people. But then second, that they also had passion about the space. And I think those were the two pieces that I thought were particularly critical for uh, finding the right investor. The second part of it that I'd say is also the process. And uh, the process uh, is really about how you go out and generate interest in um, uh, the VC community for the business you're building. Make sure you get the ability to sort of have a little bit of horse race and get the right terms. And so I actually uh, spent a lot of time advising and investing in, in young technology and biotech companies. And one of the pieces of advice I often share is that you want to uh, make sure that you spend time in advance of when you need capital to actually start to build those relationships. Because you know no one gets married on the first date you want to be able to uh, get to know some of these people and them to get to know you and get comfort and confidence around both you as the entrepreneur, as well as the trajectory of your business. And so I often advocate for getting to know people three to six months in advance of when you want to start raising your round of capital and such that when you're ready to raise, they've seen how the company has progressed and where it's at today and are ready to come in and, and uh, take the big bet on you. So you know, those are the two pieces that I'd say I've found to be critical when raising capital finding the right men and women who have the right values uh, and character but and passion for what you're doing. But then second, also running a judicious process such that you're able to elicit, solicit the best terms for your business. I guess t- terrific advice, particularly, I mean, I'm obviously I'm a big believer in, in value fit and, and character, but also what you said there about kind of, I suppose, building those relationships well in advance of uh, you know anything actually happening and a lot of that I suspect links to you always strike me as being a very strong networker you've got a great network you obviously you have your own podcast which is very successful and um, so I, I'm curious is you know that kind of networking ability that you seem to have which is not necessarily a natural skill set for a scientist <laughs> so that, that's that's unique in, in, in one aspect but also is how important do you think that is in terms of, I suppose, people building their careers or you know, looking to kind of grow their careers? Because you seem to have done that particularly well, especially what you said there about, uh, you know, from the VC perspective, actually meeting people and taking the time to meet people and build those long-term relationships. Is that something that's always been part of your makeup or something you've, you've had to work on as well? Uh, you know, it's a good question. Um, it's probably definitely something I've, I've had to work on um, just because, when you transition from science, especially in an academic context, to any sort of corporate or you know non-academic scenario, you go from being an army of one to having to be uh, sort of the leader of many. And I think it's something that I, I know, I'll be honest, I, I'm not very good at it, but I have to become better because in order to be successful, especially outside the academic arena, you need to be a good collaborator, a good leader, a good manager. Um, in the context of networking, uh, one of the pieces of advice I got when I was actually a senior in college was from uh, the associate chair of my department at the time. And he said, you know, look, when you go to graduate school, the best graduate students 
often volunteer to do stuff. And I thought that was a very interesting insight. And I think that was sort of like one of those things I thought about in the back of my mind that sort of stuck with me in the context of how I can advance my career, which is most often people are so busy, they want to sort of put work off their plate. But when you are early in your career, volunteering to do things is often a sign of uh, wanting to grow and wanting to um, help support those around you as well as those above you as well. So I think, you know, uh, that's one of the pieces that I thought was particularly critical. And maybe when I uh, meet folks and network, I was often try my best to at least inquire about like, how can I help you? Like, what can I do to, to help support whether it's your business or your idea or your science, et cetera. So volunteering and sort of doing things for free to help folks out, I think is definitely a part of it. I love it. That's a, it's a really good piece of advice that around kind of just being helpful. And I think we've all probably been in that situation where you're at an event and someone comes over and starts to try and sell you something straight away. <laughs> you, you never want to be that guy or girl. So, you know, my view, particularly the same as yours, is just to be as, uh, you know, be as helpful to people as possible. And that's often where good relationships kind of, kind of start from. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. You, you, you know, for people, again, who don't know you very well, you, you seem to have achieved a huge amount in a relatively short time in terms of your career, both academically and entrepreneurial-wise as well. And I, you know, right on your, your website where you call yourself an entrepreneur, a scientist, an internal learner so i wanted to ask about the last part eternal learner and what is that what does that mean in terms of reality and you you strike me as a very curious person so what does that learning process look like in terms of i imagine a, a continuous kind of learning curve but i just thought it was a really interesting phrase that that you use to kind of describe yourself yeah um you know i'll be honest i don't know if i have like a perfectly articulated cogent framework <laughs> around that that's that's awesome it's an awesome soundbite uh for a podcast um i think you've let me you've let me down a lot i was hoping yeah. for something really <laughs> profound <laughs> well uh hopefully yeah we'll, we'll see if we can make it up but um, yeah, you know I, I think as an eternal learner uh i am yeah i think you're right you know it's just it, it's rooted in this aspect of curiosity and i think that comes from having spent so much time as a scientist which is it's not just about the outcome. It's also about why the outcome happened. And, um, you know, I think there's many different frameworks out there about understanding first principles, for example, right? Elon Musk is well known for thinking about things at the first principles level and has sort of been the foundation of Tesla and SpaceX, et cetera. I think in, in, in my case, it's really just general curiosity of understanding why something happens. But I think it's that understanding that then allows us to figure out unique, have both develop a unique perspective around the problem as well as a unique solution thereafter. So yeah, generally, uh, I'm voracious about learning. I learn best through spending time with people uh, who are experts in the field, uh, as well as I try my best to do more and more reading, especially in other adjacent areas, which then helps inform sort of uh, my own sort of focus. But uh, yeah. Don't know if I've got a, a super coaching framework. It's just really more around just understand why uh, yeah, and then yeah, use yeah. the understanding of why to uh, to affect change. 
I think your scientific, curious scientist in you is probably the, the driver of a lot of that. So it was interesting to hear you say that. If you could go back and give your 25-year-old self some advice, what, what would you say? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I think about this all the time. I'd say the first thing is have more fun. Um, <laughs> like uh, for me, work is fun. Uh, I enjoy, you know, what, I enjoy starting companies. I enjoy developing new types of technology and software. Um, but there's like so many like life experiences, et cetera. I would, uh, I feel like I missed out on. So like, that's one I'd have more fun. Um, second, I would say is that when it comes to building companies and, uh, the work that you do, it's not just about the product or the market positioning. It's also about the people that you surround yourself with and definitely focus in on hiring and keep surrounding yourself with really great people. Uh, yeah. So I think those would be like the two aspects that I'd wish I had emphasized more or I'd ensure that my younger self had followed. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, Ramon, you know, for your, from your perspective, uh, how would you what would you go tell your 25-year-old self? Oh my, you know what I was thinking there, actually, when you said that, I, I, would, I, I think I would have told myself to stop having so much fun. Mine would be the exact opposite. I don't, my, <laughs> 20s, my 20s were just a bit of a blur. Um, yeah, I, th- I don't, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because you kind of see how life pans out and you, it, it's kind of like a set of dominoes and certain things you get right and wrong kind of send you on on certain paths. Um, so I think for me, it's, it, it is that sense. I wish I'd kind of got my act together career-wise sooner <laughs> rather than when I actually did. And, and actually, going back to the previous question, that kind of learning habit, I only really developed you know, a real habit for learning in my 30s. And I, and I kind of always wonder, I wouldn't, you know, if, I was, if I developed that habit out straight out of college you know, at 22, 23, how that would have benefited me um, certainly with things like, you know, uh, you know, managing people, leadership and bit, just, I suppose, general business acumen. Um, I think that that's my biggest kind of thing, you know, read more books and learn more stuff when you're 25 is a, mm-hmm. is a really interesting, you know, I actually did a talk about this at, a, at an event last year. It's fascinating when, when people finish college and get into jobs and they stop. Uh, it's going back to what you said about you know what's on your plate. A lot of people just get straight into work and don't actually they effectively stop learning. They learn about their job and whatever they're doing, but they stop learning beyond that. And that kind of habit of learning for life is is lost on a lot of people in their twenties. And I was certainly probably in that in that bracket. So for me personally, it would be go back and you know maybe have a bit less fun and, and read a few more books. Is <laughs> uh, is probably what I'd say. Actually, one of the things that you said that Alok is it's incredible. I think almost every guest that I have had the fortune to speak to have, have said surround yourself with good people, surround yourself with smart people. It's an incredibly common, uh, I suppose, learning from from people like yourself that work in business to just have good people around you. So it's uh, it's always interesting to hear that again and. I've got another tricky question for you as well. And so uh, how would your best friend describe you in, in three words? <laughs> Interesting. Um, let's see. My best friend, I spoke to him on Sunday. He would probably describe me as uh, intense, um, supportive, 
and I don't know. I got to think about the third. <laughs> uh, yeah. So intense, supportive and yeah. Entrepreneurial probably would probably be the third. Um, we're thinking about starting a business together. So that's like the, <laughs> the, the third. Part, yeah. Why doesn't that surprise me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, cool. So I'd, I'd quite like to spend kind of, I suppose the next five minutes or so talking about the sector and, and obviously you're in, I suppose, in life sciences generally, but you know, you've, you've had some insight into the, the outsourcing space in terms of you know, contract services. So, so I suppose at a very general level, what kind of trends and changes going on right now? And also, I suppose any observations you've got in terms of how, um, how the contract services sector can improve, certainly in terms of adopting technology, which is a, an area that you're obviously very strong on, particularly with your kind of software background. So I suppose first very generally about the sector and then any things that you can see in terms of how the, how the sector can improve uh, I suppose, utilizing uh, technology and software that's out there on the market. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like I, I, I'm really glad first that you guys have put together yeah, this podcast. Cause I think it, it speaks to a fast growing, but perhaps historically um, overlooked segment of the life sciences domain. You know, I, I think what's happened over the past 20 or 30 years um, has been that the outsourcing CRO CMO space has historically been sort of like a a side fringe aspect of the life sciences domain, and I think has become has transitioned to becoming a foundational part of everything we do in the life sciences community. And so, I think it's a very exciting time uh, to be in that space. I think it's a very important time to be in that space. Um, I, I think the the challenges that emerge for life science companies in the modern era when you can't go into the office. You have to be capital efficient. You have to um, move quickly, right? All are broader tailwinds in the industry that uh, support the growth of uh, the outsourcing space. And I think you're starting to see that both in terms of the growth of companies like CRL and IQVIA and Catalan. But then the other part of it is the quantity of capital that's going to support the emerging players in this space. Uh, I think one of the interesting facets and trends that I've been observing, and you know, again, coming back to first principles, part of the reason why you have a uh, variety and uh, diversity of providers in this space is because the science is ever evolving and changing, as well as the um, capital requirements to be an expert in any one of these domains is very different, right? Small molecules versus biologics versus cell therapies. It's hard to be an expert in all three but you can be very much be an expert in one and serve that market. So I'd say those are like the, the two or three, three things off the top of my head in terms of what I've been observing and don't know if that's any, you know, particularly unique compared to your other uh, guests observations, but I really think the, the outsourcing space is now the foundational bedrock, part of the foundational bedrock of the life sciences domain. I think, uh, you know, these aspects of remote work, uh, capital efficiency, velocity, um, uh, as well as, the aspect of you know unique workflows across modalities really is a strong sort of underpin of uh, what's what's happening in that domain. So yeah, that's sort of like been my at least high level overview and uh, observations of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's a very very kind of accurate and fair observation, and certainly one of the trends that we're seeing is a um, certainly with guests that I've spoke to that have spent you know 20, 30 years in the sector that kind of move away from 
contract services is being transactional and you know at arm's length to a more partnership fundamental I, mean, I love that kind of foundational bedrock phrase that that you use there and actually the real partnership and impact of the contract services sector on on really helping pharma and biotech companies achieve their goals so it's interesting that your similar observation as well and and in terms of um i know you've talked in the past about kind of data and uh, service providers i suppose utilizing themselves or being seeing themselves as kind of data experts can you can you kind of speak to that a little bit more and and what that means yeah for sure you know it's interesting because as a software as a comp as an individual who has uh, developed software uh, for this space uh, for the past you know decade and change uh, we also are sort of on the service provider sort of and vendor side of the life sciences equation. And uh, what I've observed is that CDMOs and CROs are, I think, at this really unique position and point within that broader market. And I think there's really three aspects that I think are some of the longer term threads, and you touched upon one of them, which is collaboration. I think... Uh, many biotech companies and executives in biotech companies that I talk to, you know, these are firms who raise 40, 50, $100 million. They're really not looking to transact. They're really looking to partner. And I think that really begets new types of mindsets and approaches and, and frameworks, right, of how a CDMO, for example, and a biotech company needs to work together. The second part of it is this concept that if you think about truly in the abstract, again, first principles, what is it that uh, goes on in the context of outsourcing? If you uh, set aside some of the, you know, the marketing and all that other stuff, it really is truly a transaction or exchange rather of dollars from the biotech company to the CDMO and oftentimes data back to the uh, biotech from the CDMO. And when it comes to a lot of the unique work that CDMOs and CROs do, whether it be you know, GLP talks to formulation, to spray drying, to logistics. These are institutions that are at the, are networked into a larger portion of uh, the biotech community and serve multiple different companies, work on multiple different programs, and are starting to accumulate very large sets of data and know-how on how to, uh, in their specific area of expertise. And so, you know, coming back to your question, beyond the aspect of collaboration, I really think the CDMO and the CRO industry is fundamentally a data business, right? The exchange of value is between dollars and data with a little bit of material from time to time, right? And so I think there's something to be explored in that direction when you ask the question, well, how can we as a CDMO become more strategic to our customer? How do we take advantage of our deep know-how in this specific workflow and, and space but then also the myriad of different data that we're generating uh, across different projects. How do we help use that historical knowledge to make the next measurement or the next sample or the next batch that much better? And so I think there's a lot to be explored there. And I think it's really uh, sort of rethinking the concept of what a CRO or CDMO is to be more uh, data oriented uh, as the true product. I'm, I'm so glad we've got your perspective on that, Alok, and I can... I can just envisage the minds of our listeners exploding <laughs> with that concept of, you know, or, or certainly a penny dropping of, wow, we could actually, we can view ourselves differently to, you know, just being a transactional 
uh, kind of part of the part of the supply chain. So thanks for thanks for sharing that insight. I think that's a really uh, really useful and different take on how certainly the CDMO space kind of sees itself. And and what one thing I, I, I meant to ask you right at the start, but talk to you about was obviously your podcast. And and I have to I have to say thank you as well because Alok and I met um, when I when I moved to Boston, and um, I was so impressed that you had this idea for a podcast and then you got it off the ground so quickly. And I was purely an envy. I was like, Oh my God, this guy is just doing everything so much quicker than me. And actually spending some time with Alok was a good kick up the backside for me <laughs> to actually get my act together and actually do, do molecule to market. So I wanted to say thank you for you to, for inspiring, I think, uh, you know, me getting my act together and actually bringing this podcast to life, but also just, you know, tell us a bit more for, you know, for people that don't know, um anything about your your podcast uh, the biotech in 2020 uh, sorry 2050 podcast because i think it's an interesting time and one of the things i'm hearing is that the molecule to market podcast is incredibly well timed because you know the lack of events in getting access to opinion is difficult at the minute because there's no you know, conferences with panels and things like that so just curious to know i suppose where your podcast idea came from how it's going and also just what what our listeners can expect if they de- if they decide to tune into your podcast yeah so um well you know i appreciate the kind words you know obviously um you know we we have learned a lot from uh, the remarketing team obviously ignites uh been a customer and 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 work closely with you guys on both podcasts as well as other activities um you know and obviously thank you as well for being one of our early uh uh guests on on biotech 2050 um you know, I think uh, you sort of hit upon a lot of the key uh, observations that's, I think, think been driving the growth of podcasts overall. Uh, I think first is that, you know, this specific subsegment of the industry is not particularly uh, well-served in terms of communication media discussion. I think the second part, as you pointed out, is that uh, obviously there's not a lot of events going on, but even before events, uh, you know, were, were put on hold because of COVID, what we were seeing is that a lot of the discussion that was happening in terms of innovation and strategy and uh, disruption really were centered around a very select subset of forums, bio, JP Morgan, et cetera. And there ended up becoming both an opportunity to start to maintain the pace of that discussion in between set events, but then second, also expand out the quantity and diversity of those conversations. So Biotech 2050 is a uh, you know, a podcast we started last year. We've done about thirty or forty episodes to date so far, specifically focused around um, disruptions that are changing the way the biotech industry is going to evolve in the next couple decades. And so, yeah, we've had some really interesting conversations and in everything from continuous manufacturing to virtualized trials to uh, even you know virtualized biotechs um, and, and sort of those new operating models. So really excited to sort of see other sort of technologies. And if there's folks uh, who are listening today that think that might have uh, something to add to that conversation, definitely uh, ping us and let us know. We'd love to see if uh, you could be a fit as a guest. Great. And I have to say, I mean, I I am a listener of, of your podcast and I would certainly recommend it to anyone in the outsourcing space or any of our listeners, because I think it just gives a very unique insight into where the biotech space is evolving towards. And I think that's that's useful for any business to see what's what's on the horizon. And so my, my final question, Alok, to you is just, you know, I'm just interested to know whether you've got any 
uh, quotes or mantras or affirmations that that you live your life by you, you strike me as be just you know constantly learning and curious and, and you know never you know I can't I, I don't know when you sleep I suspect you drive your wife crazy because I imagine you're always online and working um but are there any and kind of quotes or mantras that you you live your life by I think that uh, in terms of quotes and or you know specific things that I live my life by I don't uh think there's really anything uh particularly profound that uh, uh guides it I would say that um from my perspective, it's really just two facets. The first is be good to others. And then second is do good work. Um, I kind of feel like if you do those two things, everything else kind of like works itself out. But, you know, when I sort of reflect on whether uh, I'm doing the right thing or not, those are sort of the two pieces uh, that I often ask myself, like, did I do everything right? You know, was I being a good person? And then second also was, uh, was I working hard enough, right? Um, because if I was being lazy and, you know, just didn't try to phone it in, then, you know, it's all, I've only got myself to blame. And, you know, I think the one thing I just share is that in the context of being a, uh, entrepreneur and business leader, uh, versus being sort of a, a part of a bigger organization or an individual contributor, uh, that the evolution of that definition changes, right? Like being a good person, for example, uh, you know, you want to help support people. You want to make sure that they're, they're successful, but at the same time, like if things are not going right, you know, you do also have to engage in, in, in letting someone go, right? And I think uh, that's the part where I'll be honest, I personally struggle a lot as an executive and as an entrepreneur, which is how do you juxtapose personally sort of what's right emotionally versus sort of what's right as a leader, right? And what you need to do there. And those are the parts that I think I'm still personally struggling with and trying to figure out what the right way to triage those are, if that makes sense. No, it doesn't. And thanks for sharing that. I think what that, that insight into you're always learning yourself and, and improving and, you know, you're not the finished article is a, is a great place to, uh, it's one of the things we try and get across in this podcast that successful people like yourself haven't always got it all figured out <laughs> and they're always learning. And I love what you said there. I remember a quote I used to use, which is, you know, uh, be nice, work hard, and good things happen. And it's not a, not a, not a million miles away from from exactly what you you talked yeah. about there. So, Alok, honestly, I could talk to you all day. You're such an interesting guy, and I'm uh, yeah, I'm so pleased that we managed to get you on the podcast. And actually, that hopefully it will introduce you to lots of more people that will no doubt want to learn more about you and your podcast. So, thank you so much for coming on on Molecule to Market. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. again thanks so much for tuning in to molecule to market we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find more shows on spotify apple podcast or wherever you like to listen get in touch with us on our website molecule to marketpod.com and follow us on linkedin or twitter and we will see you again next week Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences. 